Good morning, everybody. I want to, uh, I know sometimes I have to say things up here that maybe I've had a couple people say that made me say ouch. Um, so I want to make sure that you hear both things. One thing that I have really enjoyed seeing over the last couple years, and I genuinely appreciate about all of you, that I want to let you know. Um, so if you remember, I did not start preaching when I became the pastor in January. I had the opportunity, you, you all were gracious, the elders, the leaders were gracious enough to allow me to preach uh, in 2017 and in 2018 and in 2019. And when I first preached, I, I, I believe in questions. I believe in interaction. I enjoy I enjoy that. And when I first started preaching, I would ask a question. I remember this. The very first question I ever asked in a sermon, and here was the response. And nobody budged, and nobody said anything. And it has been really fun to watch you guys come alive in those seats. And last week, I'm asking questions. I'm getting four, five, six, seven voices shouting out answers. And when I'm asking questions about hands, I'm seeing most of the hands going up. So that you guys are doing well. I'm enjoying seeing you kind of wake up from, I don't want you to just sit there like statues. I like the interaction, so thank you. I enjoy that. All of that to say, there's another question this week, so start getting ready to answer, right? Uh, but this week, as we continue to look at Jesus' life, we come to a passage that at first glance, it's not going to seem like there's a whole lot to dive into. But I've really been challenged by studying this next part of Jesus' life because we're coming to a very pivotal moment. Or actually, we've arrived at a very pivotal moment in his ministry. This is a major turning point in the ministry of Christ. This is when he calls his 12 apostles. Uh, so I want to read the passage. It's in both Mark and Luke. I'll be reading from Luke chapter 6, and then we'll open in prayer right after God's word. So this is Luke 6, 12 to 16. And these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your word and the truth in your word, God. And when we come to a passage like this that may seem to be, it's just a list of names, Lord, what do you want us to learn from it? We ask that you open our eyes and you teach us from these verses. And so as we continue this conversation, as we continue to look at who you are and ultimately to look at your character and your nature and your heart, Lord, we ask that you would reveal that to us. That as we study this list of 12, these, these 12 whom you chose out of a larger crowd of disciples, we ask that you would teach us about your heart, that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would draw us deeper in love with you, that this would grow our love for you. And that as we grow in love for you, Lord, that this would conform us to the image of Jesus, that we would continually understand who we are to look like and who we are to resemble. And Lord, that you would teach us to live missionally as Jesus did. We give you this time. Holy Spirit, we ask that you fill this place. That this would be an offering that is pleasing to you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so I said I was going to ask a question. Here's a question. What's culture? When you think of, when you think of culture, what? just throw out words, throw out ideas. Oh, don't make me look bad. I said you guys were doing great. It is a hard question. Okay, good. That's an answer I was hoping to get. Culture is a very... An identity. Culture is an identity of a people. That's fantastic. A nationality. That's absolutely a defining part of culture. The way people live, that's a great answer. The way people live. Yeah, it's our behaviors, it's our norms, right? It's, it's the social laws that kind of govern the unspoken interactions with people. A church can have a culture, right? This body, we have a culture. Your family has a culture, you have an identity, you have a way you interact with one another. A school has a culture, a neighborhood has a culture. We are surrounded by culture. And historically, 
the church, God's people, kind of took three main positions that I really think you still see live out today. I think you see part of the church, part of God's people, look at culture, look at the culture around them, and they want nothing to do with that, and so they remove themselves from it, and they isolate themselves from it. And let me be very clear, God in the Old Testament was explicitly clear on how his people were to interact with culture. God laid out rules for, look, you are going to be surrounded by a culture that has nothing to do with me. Here is how you are to interact with him. And he gave them rules so that they would not become influenced by culture. He gave them guidelines. He set up parameters. He established norms. Look, this is what you need to do so that culture does not shape you. So God absolutely laid out an expectation that you will not be shaped by the culture around you. But the unfortunate reality is, as with so many things, that we as sinful fallen people, we took what God had established as good, these parameters, these boundaries, and they've become abused. And so you have the Pharisees who they not only removed themselves from culture around them, they kind of even removed themselves from Jewish culture and elevated like we're better than this. And it became a source of pride and a stumbling block. And then you had the Essenes, and they removed themselves from culture literally, and they went and lived out in the desert, and they lived this very Spartan life of, we don't want to be influenced by culture, so we are going to completely sever all possible ties in relationship and interaction with culture. And then you also have, so you've got, and I still think you see that today, you see Christians, you see churches, who they recognize that the culture around them is not godly, but I believe they incorrectly respond by saying, okay, well then we are going to completely remove ourselves from it and have absolutely no relationship with it whatsoever. Then you have the Christians who say, uh, culture's not so bad. You're kind of overblowing this, right? This isn't a big deal. We'll assimilate to it and we'll begin to resemble it. And historically, you saw this in the Sadducees. The Sadducees frequently wound up taking the positions within the Roman government and interacting with the Roman government. They allowed themselves to become influenced by Roman worship. And so the Sadducees historically represented this idea of assimilating to culture. And then you have a third and final position that, again, I still think you see in the church today. Well, we'll overthrow it. We reject culture. We recognize that culture is not godly. So we will aggressively attack it, and we will violently overthrow it, and we will turn this into a battleground of division and strife and tension. Historically, in Jesus' time, this would have been the zealots. The zealots were, for lack of a better term, not for lack of a better term, for, to use modern language, the zealots were domestic terrorists. I mean, really, when you study the zealots, when you look at the writings of Josephus and other historians, the zealots advocated, they were Jewish, who had a problem with the Roman oppression, but so they advocated a violent overthrow and removal of the Roman government. They would assassinate Roman officials. They would assassinate Jews who they felt had betrayed their heritage by working with the Roman government. So the zealots, they looked at culture and they said, all right, we're going to take this down. We're going to destroy this. And again, I think you see all three of those. I think you see Christians today totally isolate themselves from culture. I, see, I think you see Christians in the church today totally assimilate themselves to culture. I think you see Christians in the church today totally violently seek the overthrow and the removal of culture. And if you think this isn't a problem, if you think that, man, maybe is Sam being a little dramatic here? I want to share with you guys something. This is George Barna. If you know the name Barna, does a lot of research, right? And he recently, or I don't know how recently, but he's, he's at Arizona Christian University, and they just released their, they call it the Worldview Index. And this is not a study of Christians and non-Christians. This is not a study of Christians and Muslims and Buddhists and atheists and agnostics. The Worldview Index that they put out is a study of Christians in America, these are people who claim Christianity to be Christians. Listen to what they've found. I just want to share a couple stats. We're going to talk, they broke it down into four categories, and some of us were talking this morning. These categories, there's, there's room for interpretation within some of the denominations. But this study basically broke down Christians in America into four large denominational umbrellas. We're going to look at the evangelical umbrella. 
You have evangelical, you have Pentecostal slash charismatic, you have mainline Protestant, and you have Catholic. We're going to look at the evangelical umbrella in America. 52% of those who identify themselves as evangelical Christians in America reject the idea that there is absolute moral truth. Truth is relative. 52% of Christians in America. 61% do not read the Bible with any consistency or regularity. And 75% believe that people are good. There's no such thing as original sin. 75% of evangelical Christians in America say that there's no such thing as original sin. People are good. In the summary of this study, Barna made this observation. The irony of the reshaping of the spiritual landscape in America is that it represents a post-Christian reformation driven by people seeking to retain a Christian identity. So the church, the American church, is moving further away from biblical truth, but they are striving to maintain a Christian identity and still label themselves Christian. He says, unfortunately, the theology of this reformation is being driven by American culture rather than biblical truth. The church has reached a point where we are being more influenced by the culture around us than we are by biblical truth. And within that, I think you see the church today still fall into these three categories of total isolation and removal, of assimilation, of total violent overthrow and rejection. And so I said at the start, right, this passage that we looked at, it's really just a list of names. Why are we studying this? Well, because when you look at the 12 apostles, we see a fourth approach to culture. We see Christ demonstrate a fourth approach to culture. It is not a total removal and isolation from culture. It is not an assimilation to culture. It is not a violent overthrowing of culture. Jesus transcended culture. Jesus came along and he transcends culture. And what I mean by that is Jesus did not remove himself from culture. Where was Jesus doing his ministry? In the towns, in the cities. He was among the people. He was interacting with the culture around him on a regular basis. Jesus did not remove himself from culture. Jesus did not assimilate to culture. Jesus did not sacrifice biblical truth. Jesus did not sacrifice the kingdom of God in the name of culture. Jesus did not violently attack culture. He did not advocate for a violent, aggressive removal and tearing down of culture. He actually taught the other thing, right? You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I tell you, and he gave them a new way. Jesus transcended culture. He rose above culture in order to transform culture. When we're talking about transcending culture, that's what Jesus did. He rose above the culture he was surrounded by, and he transformed it. And you see that in these 12 apostles. And we're going to look at three specific ways that you look at. We're going to look at three specific divisions that existed back then and still exist today. As we look at these three divisions, we're going to look at a division of generational gaps, an age division, right? Tell me that's not still a problem today. I'm going to speak, I'm going to speak in stereotypes here. I want you to know I do not subscribe to what I'm about to say, right? Don't, don't edit the YouTube clip down and be like, whoa, did you hear what Sam said? I'm about to speak in stereotypes when you think of generations. If that younger generation would stop being so selfish and egotistical, if that younger generation would just get their act together, things would be better. If that middle generation, if those 30 and 40 and 50 year olds, if they would stop being so selfish and absorbed in all their kids' sports, if that middle generation would just get their act together, things would be better. If that older generation would stop being so stuck in their ways, things would be better. If that older generation would just get their act together, things would be better. Don't tell me we don't have a stark generational gap and divide in this country. In how Jesus chose the 12 apostles, he also transcended the social and economic gaps of social class and status, of economic class. 
Don't tell me we don't have gaps between various social classes and various economic classes in our country and that it hasn't pervaded the church. But Jesus transcends that in how he chose the 12 apostles. And then third, the one that everybody's going to love for me to talk about, Jesus transcended political division. Jesus looked at political divide and he went right past it. But we don't have political division in our country today, so we don't have to worry about that, right? Right, somebody said right. Yeah, Jesus transcended culture. Let's start with the generational gap. And this is why we study. This is why you study the lives of these 12 apostles, because there's such fascinating information to be gleaned from them. So we're going to start with Peter. We're going to start with Peter, and we're going to read from Matthew 17, 24 to 27. And this is, this is a passage that frequently gets brought up to actually talk about politics, but I think it's equally revealing for what it reveals about generational gap. Because when I talk about Jesus transcending the generational issue and the age issue, Jesus does that in two ways. You'll notice as we study the 12 apostles that there is a generational, there is an age gap amongst the apostles. And then Jesus also transcends the way the culture of the time would have looked at the various generations and the younger generations. So Matthew 17, 24 to 27. When they came to Capernaum, actually, before I begin, think of all the paintings. Right? This is the most famous portrayal of Jesus and the apostles. How old are the apostles? Give me an age. 50? What? 20s? Okay. I would say, yeah, maybe I think, you know, you've got some light hair. Maybe you've got some 20s, some 30s. I see some gray hair. Maybe we're looking at 40s and 50s. But that's who the apostles were, right? Jesus was choosing peers and contemporaries and people older than the apostles. What if he wasn't? What if for the 12 apostles, the 12 apostles, Jesus brought all his disciples to him and he chose out 12 that he would invest in that he would send out to build his church. What if he chose teenagers? What if he chose teenagers? And what if he chose one, not just one teenager, but he chose Peter, who Peter was probably over the age of 20. But not much beyond that. Well, how do we know that? Let's look. Matthew 17, 24 to 27. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma, pay attention to that, the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. The tax was two drachma, Jesus said, you're going to find a shekel. A shekel was four drachma. So you're going to find a coin that covers the cost of two taxes. And Jesus even says, he says, take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. What is this tax? This is the temple tax. The temple tax was a half shekel, two drachma, per every Jew over the age of 20. So if you were a Jew over the age of 20, you owed a half shekel. You owed two drachma. If you were the under the age of 20, you didn't owe this tax. So Jesus says, hey, go and find enough money to cover the cost of two tax payments. That means we have one of two options. Jesus either said, you know what, Jim, you and I, I'll cover our payment. The rest of you guys, you're on your own. So Jesus either covered for Peter's tax and left the other 11 to fend for themselves or they didn't need to pay this tax because they were under the age of 20. Yeah, but you said teenagers. How do we go even lower? Well, we know, we know that some of the apostles wind up married later on. When you look at Acts, it references multiple mother-in-laws. So we know that some of the apostles wind up married later on. But at this time, Peter is the only one who is married. You have Matthew 8, 14, and when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. According to first century Jewish cultural customs, and this is where you have to look at Jewish history and culture, according to Jewish culture, a man was married at the age of 18. We know Peter is married. 
we know the other apostles are not at this time. We then know that Jesus covers Peter's tax payment in his own, so we can deduce that Peter is over the age of 20, but the other apostles aren't. Are you sure? That still seems kind of, well, let's keep looking. Let's keep looking. How did Jesus refer to these other 11 apostles? Matthew 11.25, Luke 10.21, John 13.33. Jesus refers to the other 11 apostles. He refers to the 11 apostles with a phrase that we've translated little ones. And what this meant, colloquially speaking, in Hebrew language, what this meant was kids. Jesus is referring to the apostles as children, as kids. And so, one, this would have been incredibly insulting to grown men, right? I mean, Mike, if we're at an elder meeting, Mike's an elder, right? We sit down for an elder meeting, and I say to you, okay, children, time to listen. Are you going to appreciate that? No. So Jesus refers to the apostles as little ones. He refers to the apostles as children. Okay, so we know they're young. How do you said teenagers? I'm still not seeing. Again, this is why we study the history. This is why we study the details. Where did Jesus call the apostles from? He called them from various trades. They were all at labor. They were all working. What do we know about Jewish culture? Not sorry, not Jesus culture. What do we know about Jewish culture? We know that according to the Mishnah, the, ra the rabbinic commentary that dictated Jewish culture, this were, these were the main age marks. Children began to study scripture at age five. It was mandatory. Okay, so kids, you go to school at age five. Mishnah study begins at age 10. Torah study begins at age 13. And then your compulsory education is done. So once, once you start that 13, you start studying at 13 and it lasted two years. While you were 13 and 14, you were required to attend and to study. And then after that, at age 15 in Jewish culture, you had one of two options. If you were a good enough student from a good enough family, a rabbi would select you to become their disciple. Right? Last week we looked at how rabbis pick disciples. So in Jewish culture, at age 15, you would say, okay, Logan, your parents are legitimate, they're well-connected, your family has money, you're going to come study under me, okay? I'm sorry, you're not. So, so then what Preston does, because Preston is age 15, <laughs> Logan laughed. Well, see, but here's the thing, he gets to go make money. You just have to study. He gets to go start a job. So Preston, because a rabbi has not chosen him at age 15, Preston enters into a trade and begins working. So when you look at all of these details, you see that Jesus referred to the apostles as little children. You see that he called them from trade. So we know they were at least 15. We know they weren't 18 because they weren't married. We know they weren't 20 because they didn't have to pay the tax. So 15, 16, 17, maybe about to turn 18. But either way, Jesus did not surround himself with a group of 45-year-olds. Jesus picked to transform the culture. Jesus picked a group of teenagers to study under, to pour into their lives. And what's interesting, I talked about that not only did you see, right, you have Peter, a 20-year-old, maybe even a little older. You've got Peter in his 20s, these disciples and their 15, 16-year-old, and they're hanging out together. So Jesus, even within the group, Jesus is bringing together two age groups who really aren't hanging. I mean, think of modern society, right? When I was, oh, no, I'm here. shoot, I shouldn't have said this. But I was in, when I was 20, I was somewhere in college. I don't know what year that fell on. But I was a college student when I was 20. I was not hanging out. What are you when you're 16? High school sophomore? Sophomore? High, as a college student, I'm not hanging out with high school sophomores. No. Are you kidding me? There's, there's zero chance. Hey, Sam, you're home on break. You want to go hang out with some high schoolers? Not at all. I'm, I'm 20. No, I'm not hanging out with the children. Jesus assembled this group together to be his apostles. And then I talked about that Jesus also used this group to demonstrate a transcension of cultural divide, of generational gap with the people around him. In those passages, in Matthew 11:25, Luke 10, 21, John, John 13, 33, when Jesus refers to these apostles as little children, when he refers to the apostles as kids, how is he doing so? By pointing them out to the Pharisees and to the crowds around them as an example of understanding. 
Do you know how, how, I mean, just mind-blowing that would have been for the crowds? You have crowds of people following Jesus, and there's conversation, there's debate, and they're looking for understanding. And on one side, you have the Pharisees, the most learned and educated people in their culture. And on the other side, you have a group of teenagers, and Jesus says, God, I thank you that these children understand what these wise men do not. Jesus is elevating these teenagers as these are the ones who get it. These are the ones who understand. They understand, Lord, and I thank you for that. That they understand the thing that these wise men, these mature men do not. So even within the culture, Jesus is destroying the generational gaps that would have existed in terms of, look, we're the Pharisees, we're the teachers, we're the adults here. We know better, you don't. And Jesus blows that out of the water. Jesus transcends the generational gap in his culture when he chooses the 12 apostles. Church, I want to ask you a very simple question. When's the last time you hung out with somebody 30 years removed from you? When's the last time you hung out with somebody 20 years removed from you? When you show up on a Sunday morning, don't get me wrong, of course you're going to have friends your own age who you naturally connect with. That makes sense. If my, this is why you guys shouldn't sit in the front row. I can see you right away. Mike and Russ, they each have kids. If Mike has a parenting question, he's going to talk to Russ. Russ, you have children approximately the same age as me. What do you think of this? He's not going to ask someone who has a toddler, right? Hey, you, you have a kid who's a toddler. How do you deal with a teenager? So, of course, it's natural that we are going to make friends with people our own age. But my question is for you, when's the last Sunday morning that you showed up and you intentionally sought out someone 20, 30, 40 years removed from your age to talk to them? Hey, how was your week? Let's hang out. I want to get to know you. I want to have a friendship with you. I want to have a relationship with you. If you're here and you're over the age of, we'll, pick, we'll, we'll cut life in half, and we'll say 100. 100's a great birthday, right? If you're here and you're over the age of 50, do me a favor. Within the next month, invite a young family over for dinner. Invite a family with kids over for dinner. If you're over the age of 50 and your kids are grown or your kids are out of the house, invite a young family over for dinner. If you're here and you're under the age of 50, do me a favor. Invite somebody who is grandparents over. Invite somebody whose maybe kids are all high school seniors or in college. Invite them over. I want us to be a church that transcends generational gaps. You know who I had a great conversation with this morning? Great conversation. I mean, genuine. I asked him how he was doing, and he replied with genuine, Hey, good. How are you doing, Pastor? What's new with your... He asked me this. What is new with your life? Graham Thurber. Graham is not married. I am not in the same grade as Graham. I still do not live under my parents' house. Graham does not have to worry about when the car makes a funny sound. Graham and I have nothing in common on the surface. We have Jesus in common, and I had a great conversation this morning with Graham. Church, please, let's be a body of people that transcends the generational gap that has plagued so much of the American conversation. Let's stop blaming things on other generations. Let's start seeking to make friendships and build relationships and invest in them because that is what Jesus did. Jesus transcended generational divide when he assembled the 12 apostles. Jesus also transcended social and economic class. Again, something that has become a very bitter divide for our country as a whole and even within the church. And Jesus once again blew this right out of the water in who he put together. We know from Scripture that Andrew and Peter are self-employed. Most biblical historians agree that Philip, Thomas, and Nathaniel probably are as well. Quite frankly, we really don't get enough details on some of the other guys, like Judas, son of James, Thomas, son of Alphaeus. We don't get enough detail on them to really know, but we know, with, we know for certainty that Andrew and Peter are self-employed as fishermen. And most biblical historians agree, based on contextual information and other records, that Philip, Thomas, and Nathaniel probably are as well. And for what it's worth, being a self-employed fisherman in the village they were from was not a lucrative career. We're, we're not talking about, like, these are the guys running their city's economy. These, these, were the, these were the minimum wage workers, okay? And what about the ones on the other side? 
Well, we know Matthew. Any, who was here three weeks ago or listened to the sermon three, three weeks ago, four weeks ago? Matthew, the tax collector, right? Remember that? So we know Matthew was doing well for himself because he got to just rob his fellow citizens blind whenever he wanted. Tax collector was the most lucrative career path for a Jew living under the Roman government. So we know Matthew's doing well. What do we know about James and John? This is why I say time and time again, every detail in Scripture is vital. Every detail in Scripture is important. So you had Andrew and Peter who were self-employed as fishermen. Then you had James and John and the family they came from. Mark 1.20, and immediately Jesus called James and John, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired workers and followed them. They've got a fishing empire going on. This was not a well-to-do industry. So if their father Zebedee has so much money that he is hiring people to run the fishing boats and to clean the nets, their family is doing significantly better than Andrew and Peter. What else do we know about James and John? They're brothers. They come from the same family, right? What else do we know about James and John? This is John 18, verses 15 and 16. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple, John. Simon Peter was This is Jesus has been arrested. Jesus is brought before the court. This is, this is immediately preceding. I mean, these are the events preceding Jesus' crucifixion. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple, John. Now that disciple was known to the high priest, and he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. This is a big deal. This is the arrest. This is the trial of Jesus. And John, with his family connections, is allowed into this. This is, I mean, this is front row seat for the inauguration. This is, you know, this is first base over the dugout for World Series Game 7. This is not where just anyone can stroll in. Whoa, whoa, who are you? Peter, we don't know you. You stay at the door. Oh, yeah, your family, you're known to the high priest. You get to come in. And it doesn't even stop there. Listen to the influence. Keep in mind that John is a teenager. John is a teenager. And listen to the influence he is able to exert. But Peter, he, now that disciple was known to the high priest. And he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. That's got to be the most casual and humble, it's okay, he's with me, that we have. Right? John is so casual about that. Peter was stopped by security, and John as a teenager goes, no, no, it's okay, he, he's with me. Oh, okay, we're sorry. Peter, of course you can come in. We're so sorry about that. James and John come from a family of means. They come from a family of influence. They are put together in this group of 12 with the opposite side of the spectrum. And we don't see it become a problem. It's incredible to look at these things that so bitterly divide us. I mean, social class, economic class, things that we have allowed to become so divisive in today. And Jesus, in assembling his 12 apostles, goes right past that and brings them together. Imagine if we were a church that did the same. Imagine if we were a church that, it does, I don't care what neighborhood you live in. And here's the thing, when we talk about economic divide, I want to get a little specific for a second, because when we talk about economic divide, the ire and the judgment seems to flow in one way, if we're being honest. And I confess to you that this is something that I have had to deal with in my own life in the past. I have had to wrestle with this, because you look at people who are poorer than you, and there's no judgment. If you live in a poorer neighborhood than I do, I don't question your faith. Right? You show up to church and you are driving an older car than I am. I don't question your faith. I don't sit there and say, oh, your car is falling apart. Do you really believe in God or are you just in it for the money? We're fine with people who make less than us. We're fine with people in a lower economic class than us. But you show up in a car nicer than mine? Well, clearly that person doesn't love God. Clearly they're not tithing. Do you know what neighborhood they live in? Come on. Something's got to be off there, right? I've done this. I did this in high school, and my dad called me out on it. It was awesome. Somebody pulled into our church parking lot with a really nice car, and I was like, I thought Christians were supposed to tithe. And my dad said, because he drives a nice car, he couldn't possibly love God and tithe. 
Are you really going to make a judgment on him because his car is nicer than our own? I mean, my dad called me out on, on the spot. It was fantastic. That was humbling. But there, there's a valuable lesson in that because we do that. We look at people with nicer things than us and we think, oh, their heart can't be in the right place. Imagine if we were a church that just like Jesus transcended the social class divide that transcended, and certainly it can flow in the other direction. James, in the book of James, I'm pretty sure it's James, and James it deals with this. It says, suppose a poor man and a rich man come into your building, and you say to the poor man, no, you sit over there, but to the rich man, you sit here in a place of prominence. That's wrong. Certainly we can do this and we can look down on people who are in a lower economic class or who we deem to be in a lower social class. I'm not saying it can only flow in one direction. I'm saying it's far more subtle when it flows upwards than when it flows downwards. I want us to be a church that does neither. I want us to be a body of believers that transcend the economic divides that are so problematic for so much of our national conversation. Because that's what Jesus did when he chose the 12 apostles. And now we come to the fun one that you all have been waiting anxiously for. Politics. Woo! No. Somebody, no, no. Jesus transcended political divide. Jesus transcended political division. We talked about Matthew. Do you remember how awful tax collectors were? I mean, just how absolutely despised and disgusted these are the worst people, right? Even, like, you, you love the people who are nice to you? Come on, even sinners and tax collectors do that. They are held up as an example of the barest minimum of acceptable behavior. Tax collector, they were the traitors. Wait a minute, you're betraying your own Jewish people to align yourself with the oppressive Roman government? We hate tax collectors. If this stage is a political spectrum... Tax collectors are like out in the parking lot. That's directions of parking lot. Tax collectors are out in the parking lot. Tax collectors aren't even on the spectrum. So tax collectors are on that end. Traitors to Israel. Who did we mention earlier? Zealots. Domestic terrorists. If tax collectors are on that end of the spectrum, zealots are on that end of the spectrum. See that curved dagger there? That's called a sicare, S-I-C-A-R-A-E, sicare. It was used by a faction of the zealots, those within the zealot political party, because it was very small and easy to conceal in the robes they wore, and they were called sicari. From this, we get our modern word sicario, which is a hitman. The zealots, as a political party, had assassins with their Sakare daggers that they would use to assassinate Roman officials and Roman soldiers and captains of the guard and tax collectors on the street. And Jesus looks at Matthew the tax collector and he looks at Simon the zealot and his whole band of disciples. We know Jesus has at least 72 disciples. At least, I mean at bare minimum, it talks about Jesus sends out the 72 from his disciples, actually from his disciples. So we'll say 73, we'll say at bare minimum, we know that Jesus has 73 disciples because he sends out 72, but there's at least some left. So we're not talking about, Jesus didn't pick 12 out of 13 and say, oh shoot, I'm stuck with one of you last two. No, we're talking about a large crowd. This is a large group of people and Jesus picks these 12 intentionally and he picks Donald Trump and Joe Biden and says, come on, we're gonna work together. That is what Jesus did with Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. Jesus looked at the political divisions in that country and in that culture, and he said, mm -mm, the kingdom of God, that transcends that. Mm -mm. You may hate him. Simon, you may hate Matthew with everything in you. Mm -mm. You're my apostles. It's about the kingdom of God. It's not about what divides you. It's about unity in me as we pursue the glory of God's kingdom. Jesus transcends political division. How powerful of a testimony would it be for a church to transcend political division? For a church to look at people and see them as Jesus did instead of immediately identifying everything that makes you different from me. Sam, this sounds great. But this isn't what we're actually expected to do, is it? 
Well, let's look at Scripture. Is this transcension, is this elevation rising above culture in order to transform it? Is this really meant for us? Well, let's look at generational gaps. Is generational transcension meant for the church today? Psalm 145.4, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Timothy 5, 1-2, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Did you catch that? Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Do not rebuke an, uh, younger men, but encourage him as you would brothers. Do not rebuke older women, but encourage them as you would mothers. Do not rebuke younger women, but encourage them as you would sisters. Paul clearly expects that the New Testament church is comprised and composed of multiple generations interacting with one another. If Paul is writing to the church and giving them instructions for how to interact with someone older than them and younger than them, well, clearly it's not everybody in the same age group. If the church was all 20-year-olds or all 30-year-olds, how is he going to be talking about fathers and brothers and sisters and mothers? So Paul clearly expects that the New Testament church is multiple generations working together. And that's why, and honestly, Timothy, that's one example. You have it in Ephesians. You have it in Titus. I mean, in so many places in the New Testament, you see multiple generations referenced within the New Testament church. We see it going back to the Old Testament that the church is meant to be multi-generational. Jesus transcended the age gap. We must do the same. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, social class divide. There is neither slave nor free, bondservant nor free, social class divide, economic class divide. There is no male and female social divide. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. One of the most revolutionary things that Jesus did, I, I love, it, it absolutely breaks my heart and devastates me when in modern culture people slam the church for being sexist. And really what they're getting at, I've had this conversation, well, God is sexist. God is a sexist God. Do you know how radical it was when Mary sat at the feet of Jesus to learn? That position was reserved for the most influential and prominent and richest student who was only allowed to be a male. And Jesus says, no, Mary, this is where you'll sit to learn from me. There is no Jew or Gentile. There is no American or Canadian, American or, or Mexican, American or European, American or South American. There is no cultural divide in Jesus. We are one. There is no slave or free. There is no economic. There is no 1% and 99%. There is no upper, upper class and lower class. We are united in Christ Jesus. And I'm not saying these burdens, right? I'm not saying these aren't real things that can be abused and used to hurt people. These can but what I'm saying is that Jesus transcended what the culture around him used to divide. The culture that he found them, himself in used these things to create division and separation between people. And Jesus came and united the people. This is what the church is called to be. It is called to be a transcension of culture that transforms culture. Jesus transformed culture by going past the divisions. Look at the example. Look at the testimony of transcendent unity. When you talk about the power of unity, look at the witness that it gives to the world. This is Jesus. This is called, if you're familiar with the section, it's referred to as the high priestly prayer. This is one of the last prayers Jesus offers for his apostles. This is John 17, starting in verse 20. Actually, I'm going to back up. We're going to start in verse 15. John 17, starting in verse 15, talking about the idea of removal from culture, right? Like if we could just get away from this all. Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Don't remove from the world 
but let them remember that they are not of the world. There is neither removal and isolation, nor is there assimilation. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. If God sent Jesus into the world to transcend culture, have we not been sent to do the same? And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. Listen to these verses, 20 to 23. For the witness, the testimony to the world that unity is. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. May they be one so that the world will believe you have sent me. Not may they be the richest, not may they be the most influential, not may they be the most elegant, may, not may they be the most eloquent, may they be the most educated, may they be the most powerful, may they be the... No. May they be one so that the world will know you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. When the world sees a united church, despite generational gaps, despite social class difference, despite economic difference, despite political difference. When the world sees a united church, they know, Jesus says, that they know that you have sent me. And then the second time he repeats that phrase, he adds, and loved them. That's what happens when the world sees a united church. People who are able to rise above what divides and recognize that in Jesus Christ, we are one. And I love that person, even though I disagree with them politically, even though I disagree with them socially, even though we live in radically different neighborhoods and drive radically different cars, even though they are 60 years older than me, I love that person dearly because we are one in Jesus. When the world sees that, they know that God sent Jesus and that he loves them. This is the power of a church that transcends cultural divides. I desperately want us to be a church that transcends culture. Because look at the world around you. They don't need to see more examples of division. They don't need to see more examples of ostracized people. They don't need to see more examples of bitter rhetoric and hateful speech. They need to see unity. Unity that is so perplexing. So perplexing. Sam, you have nothing to do with that person. Uh, when I list you out on paper, there is not one similarity between the two of you. Why do you have such a deep, meaningful relationship? Jesus. That's what the world needs to see when they look at the church. So I want to ask you today, and don't raise your hands, I want you to consider this. When you look at how Jesus interacted with generational divide, when you look at how Jesus interacted with economic divide, when you look at how Jesus interacted with political divide, is that how you approach those divisions? Do you as a follower of Jesus, last week we looked at not just a follower, but a disciple of Jesus, one who is called by the rabbi into loving relationship with the rabbi, to conform to the image of the rabbi, to live missionally as the rabbi did. You as a disciple of Jesus, do you transcend culture like Jesus did? Or have you removed yourself from culture? I want nothing to do with those people. If you don't have friends, well, one, statistically speaking, you probably have friends who aren't Christians. But if you look at who you interact with regularly and you're not talking to anyone who's not a Christian, why have you removed yourself from culture? Who are you going to witness to? 
If you are not interacting with unbelievers, who are you going to witness to? When I get together with Mike, I'm not concerned with, man, I hope he knows Jesus. I know he knows Jesus. But I also have friends who, when I get together with them, my concern is, okay, how can I point to Jesus? Because I know this person doesn't know Jesus, and they need to know Jesus. Church, have you removed yourself from culture? Have you assimilated to culture? You look at the world around you, and you're like, my life's kind of identical. right? When I tell people I go to church and I'm a Christian, they're surprised. Well, really? I didn't know that. Have you assimilated to culture? Or do you look at it and you recognize that it's different and you recognize that it's not good? Don't get me wrong. It's, we, it's wise. We need to understand that the culture around us is not godly. We need to not be influenced by it. But the zealots went to the point of, okay, well, let's foment rebellion. I mean, if you continue to look at church history, there are multiple armed rebellions led by the zealots. Church, have you gotten so disgusted and angry at culture that you are now, metaphorically speaking, out there trying to assassinate culture? I mean, think of the person you disagree with most. Think of it. Think of, think of the politician you disagree with most. If I looked at your speech regarding them, would I see someone who loves that person as Jesus does? Or would I see someone who with their words is verbally assassinating this person? Have we reacted to culture like zealots? Please, please, please let us be people who transcend culture. Let us be people who look at what could potentially divide us and instead say, I will respond with the heart of Jesus Christ. I will look at this person with mercy and love and compassion and forgiveness and grace. I will pray for them. I will seek their good. I will love them as Jesus did. If the church could become that, how will the world deny that God sent Jesus and that he loves them? Jesus transcended culture. Please let us be a church that does the same. So this week, as we consider this question of transcending culture, I want you to think of yourself specifically. I have one last point. One last point, and I'm going to ask you to do something that may seem a little weird. In a second, I'm going to ask you to turn and look at the person next to you or nearest to you. If it's someone you're related to, make physical contact with them. Take their hand in yours. I want you to establish a connection with the person nearest to you. But before we do, listen to these verses written about the apostles. These are, these are descriptions of the 12 apostles. Acts 2.7. And the crowd was amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? This is when the apostles were speaking in tongues. This was Pentecost. This was when they were speaking in the language of the crowds around them. And the crowd looks at each other and they say, Wait a minute, they're speaking in our language. Aren't these men Galileans? And what that meant, we talked about, if you remember the very first sermon in this series, we looked at the culture and the Galilean culture, right? And we looked at how that was a huge insult. So what the crowd was saying is, wait a minute, he's speaking my language? That's a high school dropout. These guys aren't smart enough to be speaking my language. They're Galileans. These are the 12 apostles. Acts 4.13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. And what happened? They saw the boldness of Peter and John. They saw a difference in Peter and John. They perceived that they were common, uneducated men. And what is the result? They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Jesus did not pick the all-stars. Jesus did not pick the valedictorians. Jesus did not pick the richest people out there. Sure, they had differences, right? They had differences. James and John, Matthew, they had more money than the rest. But Jesus didn't pick the rest, or the, Jesus didn't pick people the rest of the world would have picked. Jesus picked these apostles, and the result of uncommon things coming about through the work of common people is that it points to God. God uses common people. God uses the common apostle for uncommon results, which points to God. Uncommon, uneducated Galileans doing incredible things 
the crowd recognized, okay, they've been with Jesus. So now I want you to turn to the person next to you. Come on, not rather, not. There you go, right? Friends, turn to the person next to you. Make eye contact. Come on. There we go. Now imagine saying to them, would you ever say to them, where's somebody looking at their spouse? Mike and Sarah. Man, you guys really shouldn't sit in the front. <laughs> Mike and Sarah, you're, you're looking at your spouse, the person you love most in this world besides Jesus. Can you imagine, Mike, can you imagine saying to Sarah, yeah, God can't use you. You're too plain. Sarah, would you ever look at Mike and say, you know, you're really not smart enough for God to use you. Would you look at the person next to you, this person created in the image of God, the person next to you is created in the image of God, would you ever look at them and say, God can do anything except use you. You are too much of a failure. Your past holds you back from ever being used by God. God, the creator of the universe, you know what? He just can't use you. Would you ever say that? I, I don't even, if you know, I didn't make eye contact with my wife while I did this. Because the idea of saying those words to her, I would never recover emotionally or psychologically. I, 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 no, I could never say that to my wife. I hope that you could never say that to the person sitting next to you. So why do you say it to yourself? If you would not look in the eyes of the person sitting next to you, made in the image of God, and you would never say to them, Mike, you would never say to Sarah, God can't use you. Why do you look in the mirror into the eyes of a person created in the image of God, and why do you say to that person in the mirror, God cannot use you? Sam, you don't understand, God can't use me to transcend and transform culture like that. I can't have an impact on culture like that. I can't radically transform my neighborhood like that. Why not? Ephesians 3, 20 to 21 says, Ephesians 3, 20 to 21, memorize these verses and print them on your heart. Sear them into your mind. Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all you can ask or imagine according to his power at work within us. To him be the glory. I'm under no illusions. I don't think you can transform your neighborhood because of how awesome you are. I firmly believe you can transform your neighborhood according to God's power at work within you. I absolutely believe that this is the body of believers who could transform Richland County. Not because of who you are as individuals. Not because of who I am as a preacher. I believe that this is a body that could transform Richland County according to his power at work within us. And I believe that. And guess what? Ephesians 3.20 says God can do immeasurably more than that. I look at this body of believers and I see the impact and I dream of the impact of transforming Richland County. And God looks at that and says, oh child, I can do so much more. You look at your life and you say, I can't transform my neighborhood. And God looks at you and he says, child, I can do so much more according to my power at work within you. This is what Jesus chose the apostles for. This is how God used the apostles to build his church, to spread his gospel. God picked 12 uneducated, common teenagers and the world was never the same according to his power at work within us this is why I believe that the church can and should transcend culture please let us be a church that does so I want you to read Matthew 10 and John 17 this week Matthew 10 and John 17 every day this week. And I want you to ask yourself, am I transcending culture? As you read these two chapters, consider, do I transcend generational gaps and divides? As you read these two chapters, consider, do I transcend economic divides? 
as you read these two chapters, consider, do I transcend? We are two days removed from the election. Vote for who your conscience tells you to vote for. I'm not telling you how to vote. I'm saying when you interact with people who vote differently than you do, when you post about the election results, when you have conversations about the course of all of this, ask yourself, do I transcend political division? Please let us be a church that transcends culture. Join me in prayer. Father, the world offers animosity. The world offers bitterness. The world offers division. The world offers hatred. The world offers apathy towards one another. The world offers nothing but damaged, fallen relationships. But you, you offer unity. You offer love. You offer, you offer compassion. You offer mercy that I so desperately need. And that everyone sitting here so desperately needs, remind them of how desperately they need you. And then remind us, remind me, Lord, every day remind me that the people I interact with need you just as desperately. And Lord, teach me to rise above culture, transform culture by using us according to your power at work within us. Please, this is the plea of our hearts. We love you and we praise you. We ask for these things. We ask for this conviction. We ask for this boldness and the authority of Jesus' name. Amen.